Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the privilege of interviewing a person who's been a friend of mine for a very long time, Dr. Jim Smith. Jim, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Timothy, thank you. It's a uh, it's a privilege. And let me see, since there are a lot of Jim Smiths out there, <laughs> they circulate, that, that I'm James D. Smith III. How's that? Always on your uh, bio. It didn't make it to this uh, biographical sketch I'm reading, but I'm glad you clarified that because you're not just a regular Jim Smith. You are a very special Jim Smith, and you're special to me because we were students together years ago at Harvard Divinity School. You have been a professor at Bethel Seminary in San Diego for a number of years, where you also serve in that city as the associate pastor of La Jolla Christian Fellowship. So uh, you, you've been very active in ministry and in scholarship and teaching, and it's a privilege to connect with you again after we were students in Cambridge, Massachusetts, way back, I think in the 1970s. That's right. Yeah, it's been a been a privilege for me, Timothy, and uh, I just uh, appreciate the shared interests and the shared heart for uh, for the Lord's work in a way that invites all manner of people to come and uh, and enjoy that blessing. Now we've been together a few times over the years, um, and more recently we've been drawn together through our great professor at Harvard, George Hunston Williams. And that's really what we want to talk about today. One of the great church historians uh, of the 20th century. He died in the year 2000. He was born in 1914, so his life cut a huge swath across the 20th century, a remarkable person, a great, great scholar. Occasionally, Jim, somebody will say to me, oh, Dr. George, you're such a scholar, and I always say, oh, no, I'm not, but I have seen (laughs) scholars. I know what they smell like. And so I know George Williams was a great scholar, and it was a privilege to know him and, and work with him. Why don't you tell about how you came to Harvard and your impressions of George as a teacher? Well, I came to Harvard originally. My wife Linda and I moved to Cambridge. Uh, I'd finished seminary at, at Bethel, an MDiv, and thought it might be for one year something we could afford and might work to apply for a THM at Harvard. And uh, applied at Yale, too, got in there as well. But after some prayer, uh, came for what we thought would be one year in the original attraction was a New Testament ancient Christianity scholar named Helmut Kester. Yeah. I wrote ahead to him, and uh, he, he of course, just, just passed uh, in the last couple of years here. That's right. But uh, he was my dissertation advisor, ultimately. But during that one year, uh, found out that to survey church history at Harvard under George Williams meant that you took four semesters of church history. And uh, so with that, I was able, I thought, maybe to do two during my uh, single year of THM studies and was absolutely amazed going into the classroom because George Williams knew everything. <laughs> uh, as, I mean, he just knew everything, encyclopedic and, and sensitive to all these different movements of uh, God's work in and through the church, uh, not perfectly realized by his people, but but still just having the touch of God. And so with that, I was just amazed being in the presence of this individual. Over in uh, Seaver Hall, typically, we'd slide in 
and he would just go after it. And I, I kept actual double books. That's not accounting, <laughs> but I kept I kept one slice of narrative for historical facts. And over in the left margin, as I was handwriting it, I'd put in anecdotes. I'd put in when he'd take off his glasses yeah. and then reminisce. And so things like that were just magic to me. You know, I remember those days. I was George's teaching fellow for a couple of those years when we were meeting at mm-hmm. Seaver Hall. I remember he would always go to morning prayer, and that was held in those days, maybe still now, in Appleton Chapel, which was adjacent yes. to Seaver Hall there in Harvard Yard. And without fail, uh, he would be there in Appleton Chapel for morning prayer. Uh, and there are all kinds of speakers covering every kind of spectrum you could imagine back in the 1970s. But there were there was some content. Continuity. Every every session was the Lord's Prayer was said. Every session there was a reading of the scriptures and a singing of a hymn. Mm-hmm. And George, I asked George, why do you go to this every single morning? And uh, I would go just to be with him and to walk with him over to the class. But he was there every day and he said, this is so important that you begin your day in a time of prayer and reflection. It's going to shape the rest of your day. And that's the way his life was lived. Now, he mm-hmm. was he was really interesting, Jim, in that he was a Unitarian uh, from several generations back. His father was a graduate of Harvard Divinity School way back, I think, in 1913 or something like that. And yet, George Hunston Williams believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. I remember being so puzzled by that. How could a Unitarian believe in the Trinity? You remember that? I remember it well, and, and I think... Uh he would most often refer, in terms of his own beliefs, refer to the divine triad. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that was a phrase that he utilized both to express this, the core conviction of historic Christian faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also not to wave a red flag in front of people that might find offense at the language, but might still leave the door open for a conversation. So it was uh, most vividly, I think, one occasion we were up at uh, George and Marjorie's house. Uh, There was a a house guest there who was a patristic scholar from England, who was from the Church of England, but in fact was a practicing Unitarian at best. Then there was George, who was the Unitarian, and he was in a lively argument or discussion, if you will, with this scholar because he was advocating the divine triad. Yeah. So I, th- I thought, we're not short on ironies here. This is amazing. <laughs> here's this Anglican Unitarian, and here's this Unitarian Trinitarian. And that was part of the richness of uh, seeing George uh, at work as a teacher and uh, as a Christian brother. Absolutely. Now, he was an ordained Unitarian minister, but he was also ordained in the United Church of Christ, which represented mm-hmm. the old Congregationalist tradition of New England Puritanism. And he he often said that he, he wanted, he aimed in himself to reunite these two branches of the Lord's body that had become divided in history. And there was about him, deep in his core, uh, this kind of ecumenical fervor. Uh, and it expressed itself in a lot of ways. Um, for example, uh, his strong interest in the Catholic Church. He was one of the very few Protestant observers at all four sessions of the Second Vatican Council and actually wrote a great deal about that. Became acquainted with uh, the person who became Pope John Paul II. 
uh, Carol Cardinal Wojtyła when he was at Vatican mm-hmm. II. Later wrote a book about him called The Mind of John Paul II. Uh, and this was something that he conveyed to me and I'm sure to you and to all of his students, the importance of the unity of the body of Christ despite the brokenness and the dividedness that we live with in a broken world today. That's that's right. And that that's so well said, Timothy. I Let me recount an experience, and, I, and I've said this elsewhere, but mindful of the moment here. Uh, was walking across Harvard Yard one time with with George and uh, was again amazed by his graciousness, his generosity. That was not only in terms of, you know, his classic, of course, 1962 and many revisions, the Radical Reformation um, and, and generosity in the 16th century, but to all these amazing array of groups who somehow were under this this, this Christian banner. And I said to him, you know, something like, how can you be so generous to all these people? It just amazes me. And his his words back to me, and I paraphrase, you know, I wish I had a tape recorder, you know, but 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 his words back to me were we have to make a choice. Either we can focus on the tragic brokenness of the body of Christ when we see all these different groups and denominations, everything, either we can focus on the brokenness or without denying the brokenness, we can simply affirm that no one group can express the fullness of Christ. Mm. And he said, and he said, that's my conviction, that no one group can express the fullness of Christ. And so I need to have an ear. I need to have an attentiveness to find out what it is in the fullness of the Lord that can be shown me through studying and knowing uh, this particular group, and that's that's really informed my teaching, my thought ever since. Mm-hmm. It's about the fullness of Christ, without denying the real challenges. It's it's kind of like First Thessalonians five twenty one: examine all things and hold on to what's good. That's excellent. Well, while we're still talking about ecumenism, it, it was George who really taught me the importance of what I've come to call the ecumenism of conviction, not of accommodation. Because while he had this remarkable breadth that you've just described, he also had depth, and he never wanted people to sort of play loose and fast with their hard-fought, hard-won convictions. He felt that a person who had really deep convictions and was willing to defend them and talk about them uh, was much closer to the heart of Christian unity than someone who simply sought the least common denominator. Let's just hold hands and be nice kind of philosophy of ecumenism. So I appreciated that fact that he, he was a person of conviction. He had deep convictions about many things. We've talked about some of them. And he encouraged that in his students. And he once said that uh, the two parts of the creed that the church historian is to make meaningful are una sancta, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and communio sanctorum, the church as the communion of saints. What do you think George meant by that expression? I think ultimately, playing off of what I mentioned a moment ago, the issue being the fullness of Christ, that insofar as, you know, as Paul would say, insofar as we gaze into the reality of Christ, insofar as we gaze into the truth of the Word and we open ourselves to the Spirit, then in fact Christ himself takes the center place and uh, una sancta, the one, the one and the holy, we become unified even if we in details have diversity, even if we have even disagreement, but we center around Christ. It's what Paul Heber would later on, if I can skip to missiology for a mm-hmm. moment, 
uh, what what Paul Hebert uh, would call the uh, the centering uh, stage mm-hmm. of of theology. In other words, there's a boundary set, but there's also a centered set. Boundary means you agree all the same things pretty much, and then you're uh, part of God's family. Centered set means you're pointing toward Him with your attentiveness. Uh, and you may be positioned in various ways, but if Christ is the center, then there's really a, a transforming element of what God's grace has done. So that unity around Christ, and of course, uh, the communion of saints, part of the creed, of course, and and in that, uh, the sense in which we really do belong to one another. Uh, it was interesting uh, at points, because I, as you may recall, you had already I think, moved on into uh, seminary teaching and then on to being at Beeson. But I had the privilege of working with Henry Nowen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, seeing Henry uh, on one side and seeing George Williams on the other, this whole sense of uh, God so loved the world means that uh, that all manner of people are beloved of God. The question is, um, as we live our lives, are we going to respond by saying to God, I love you too? And that's and that gives us a, a unity and a communion, a community, that is a divine as well as human. You mentioned a while ago one of George Williams, uh, well, really his most famous book, The Radical Reformation, uh, pu- mm-hmm. published first in 1962 and then through several additional editions, uh, translated into several languages. An amazing book that... Uh, gave a kind of coherence to what used to be called the left wing of the Reformation. George actually coined this term, the radical Reformation, going back to the root, the radix of the Christian faith, and in these various variegated groups, many of whom were persecuted and even martyred in the 16th century. And yet he found something in their witness that was worth lifting up into the limelight, reflecting on, and learning from. Well, it was it was a profound book, and... You know, as I said, I initially went to uh, went to do the THM because of Helmut and some of his writings. The book that that first captured me uh, as I got into this four semester sequence. I was taking the last two semesters in the sequence uh, in what I thought would be my only year there. But uh, he didn't assign the Radical Reformation as you know the the reading for the whole course uh, very very humbly. But he referred to it and said, if you're interested, you know, then look at these. And I thought, this is incredible. This is incredible because of of his attention to detail. I mean, as you know, Timothy, he went on to learn Polish once he became convinced mm-hmm. this was an area that needed to be explored. I uh, went through some just some profound personal sacrifices to engage the materials. And so I was fascinated by by this book, by the attentiveness and his sense of uh, these are not just you know Schweimer, these are not just rabble. These are people who are seeking a root of Christian faith in the Scripture and at the heart of the earliest Christian community. And whether or not they exactly grasped it in their times, that was their heart's desire. And uh, these were people for George Williams that were deserving of attention and respect. He called them our speaking cousins. 
You know, we're kin to them, uh, spiritually speaking, and we have something to learn from them. Even as you say, some of them may seem weird and wacky to us, as we might to them. But uh, there is something there worth our attention. Another thing about George that I remember and appreciate so much is the fact that he did not approach his discipline and his career as a scholar, as a teacher, as a writer, uh, simply from the standpoint of objective academic interest. One did not study the history of God's people the way one might study uh, an innate, uh, an inert object. Rather, there was a, a sense of being engagé. And he left to quote uh, the great historian Otto von Harnack, we study history in order to intervene in the course of history, and we have a right and duty to do so. Yes. For without historical insight, George said, quoting Harnock, we either permit ourselves to be mere objects of the historical process or tend to mislead people in an irresponsible way. And so he indeed was an interventionist in many ways in the causes he cared about, in the passions to which he gave himself. What would you say about his role as an activist? Well, I think it began, again, with his approach to the story, his approach to history. One day I was sitting talking with him he cleared cleared off a chair you remember those moments you know he cleared a chair up in widener k and, and you had uh, to clear it because his his books were up to the ceiling everywhere i <laughs> i have never seen a more mismanaged and totally disheveled office until i saw my own <laughs> i remember going up one time i thought i better get some stilts i'm going to have to walk on stilts to get into this office you know but but he cleared off a chair and we were talking about the discipline of church history, and, and he said, one of the foundational decisions we have to make is whether we are studying a specimen or a species. He says, if we're studying a specimen, <clears throat> then our object is to pin it to the board. And, of course, he had uh, some background in the sciences, yes, too. Yes, he did. Uh, but, but we have to pin it to the board, get out our sharp knives, and, and go about mastering it. He said, if we're working with a species, which he says, I believe we are, then the first thing we need to do is listen and develop a relationship and engage on that mutual basis. And I thought, I'm going to carry this with me. Well, here we are. You know, it's not, it's not a specimen when we look at the church. Uh, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a layperson working with purpose, you know, this is a species. This is a living uh, organism that is inhabited by our Lord. And, and so that, to me, is a tremendous difference, and that was part of his conviction as a churchman. Uh, this is a living body. And this brought him into all kinds of issues. This was, of course, a period in American history. It was a period of causes, of marches in the street, of demonstrations on civil rights, the war in Vietnam. He was engaged on all of those fronts. Also, the sanctity of life. He was very strongly committed to a pro-life uh, position and actually preached about that once in Memorial Chapel there at Harvard. Uh, so he, yes. ha he had great courage of his convictions and was not afraid to engage and, and to enlist others in something he believed very passionately about. And one of those causes, and maybe you could comment on this because I know you've helped bring now into print again some of his writings dealing with what he called Christian naturalism concerned with the creation itself and the care of creation. Well, he, he said, and, and we noted this uh, in now helping introduce these new editions of his work, 
uh, on uh, you know Christian attitudes toward nature and, and wilderness and paradise in Christian thought. Uh, he was fond of saying that we are creatures of a creator and subjects of a kingdom. And so as a result, we have, we have twofold relationship. One respects the biology. One expects, you know, anticipates and expects a connectedness uh, to, uh, to the created order, to the universe, to this earth. Uh, you know, growing out of his childhood in Ohio, once in a while he'd reminisce about just seeing the beauty around him, how that, uh, you just stop and look at the beauty around him and wonder, as you know, as the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so uh, that multi-level aspect where we are not alienated or meant to be alien from the rest of creation, we are indeed creatures of a creator. Uh, but also in the midst of that, uh, because he is meant as Lord of heaven and earth to have his proper place and recognition as subjects of a kingdom we need to contend for the value, the importance of the created order. And so in the midst of, uh, of that time as a Christian naturalist or we'd say an environmentalist, um, that, uh, that was a powerful role uh, that he had, and prophetic, I think, in, in a lot of ways, as he was in, in, in other things as well. You know, in some ways, he, he was uh, well ahead of his time. Uh, Rachel Carson's mm-hmm. Silent Spring, that very famous and influential book, came out in 1962. That was the same year George Williams published The Radical Reformation, and the same year in which he published the first edition of Wilderness and Paradise in Christian Thought. So he'd been thinking about these issues and the interconnectedness of Christian faith and, and issues issues related to life together on this planet for a long, long time. While we're talking about this, um, I want us to be sure to let everybody know about these two books. You referred to them, and they are available through Whip and Stock Publishers. I'm sure you can get them through Amazon.com or something like that. Uh, George Hunston Williams, Christian Attitudes Toward Nature, and a second book related to it, Wilderness and Paradise in Christian Thought. And so I would commend you to read George Williams' books here, and you can still get in print The Radical Reformation and a number of other uh, of his writings as well. Well, Jim, we're almost out of time. We have a couple of minutes left, and I wonder if you want to just think with me back to those days at Harvard Divinity School uh, and how that shaped your life and your ministry. And when you think about it today, uh, you and I are not as young as we used to be, but um, our life has been decisively shaped by our friendship, but also by knowing people like George Williams. You mentioned Helmut Kester. Christopher Stendhal was our dean uh, during part of that time. Uh, Some great scholars and great uh, people of the church. Well, you know, for me, it was uh, it was a remarkable time because, uh, among other things, I was convinced that if God really was calling me to to pastoral ministry, which was still a surprise at that point, uh, I guess it still it still is <laughs> that the Lord would put His hand out that way. That um, part of what I part of what I needed to do is be a good listener and to listen to the story that lay behind. Uh, numbers of uh, of different peoples of the world, different cultures uh, around the um, the communities from which I came. I came from a very blue collar background. In fact, my dad thought he would lose me uh, when I went to Harvard. He thought this is just too much. He was a tuna fisherman, and 
and uh, worked building manholes in, in San Diego. Wonderful guy. My mom was wonderful in music, and but had been burned in some ways, you know, by academic uh, elitism in other senses. So it was people like George who remained down to earth, uh, who valued the people that uh, was significant to me, helped me to listen to the story. And also when I said, you know, would it be crazy for me to go over and take sacramental theology at St. John's? He said, no, by all means, go do that. Or go over to Weston or Andover Newton or, you know, Gordon Conwell. Uh, He said, just, you know, just enjoy it and have benefit of what's here. And that openness uh, was a blessing for me intellectually and personally, but also as I was pastoring a congregation there in Dorchester that was kind of growing from minuscule to small. Uh, and, uh, you know, things were happening there and people finding the Lord. Um, he was an encourage, encouragement pastorally because I got to listen to the roots of that church. You know, when when we were... Uh, during that year, doing pastoral ministry during those times, there were people born in the 1800s that were in our congregations. Mm. And and to be able to listen to them, especially some who were Swedish immigrants in my uh, Swedish Baptist church there, um, that was just a wonderful gift of attentiveness uh, to their their story. And that's really, I think, informed it ever since as I continue to you know, teach uh, uh, here at Bethel Seminary and over at uh, Richmond University in the spring and, and as pastoral ministry continues. I'm just so grateful uh, for, for that encouragement personally and, and uh, professionally as well. Thank you so much, Jim, for this conversation. We've just been reminiscing today about one of our great teachers, Dr. George Hunston Williams, who was the Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School from 1963 to 1980. Our friend, our teacher, our mentor in many ways. It's been a joy to connect with you again, Jim, in this way, and I wish you every blessing in the good work you are doing at Bethel and throughout the body of Christ. Timothy, thank you. It's such a privilege uh, to share about our our mentor, but also, dear brother, for us to continue fellowship in variety of ways and uh, wish you God's blessing. Linda sends her greetings to you and Denise too. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website BeesonDivinity.com Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.